Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. We want to talk about that today, but we want to... I'm going to go back a little bit, about 30 years before the great March on Washington that we all know about, a pivotal moment in American history, I have a dream and all that. But that was very slow in coming. Now the first thing I want to think about, and I almost wrote a song about this, the Middle, uh, the middle Seat Blues. And I, want you, I want you to reflect a moment, most of us have found ourselves uh, in the middle seat of an airplane. Oh, thank you. Most of us have found ourselves, all right, uh, on the middle seat of an airplane, you know, uh, six months before you're going to go, you save a lot of money, 15 bucks at least by, you know, <laughs> taking the middle seat. Uh, and how do we feel within that? And I, I think this fairly well captures how it feels to do that. The, uh, what, what's that? Gary Larson, that's right, I should give him credit. The middle seat on airplanes is probably the best example of being caught in a miserable situation. Now, back when I used to ride public transportation a lot, those of you who have lived in big cities, the CTA in Chicago, for example, you're gonna be getting on the subway trains, the trains, and the buses. So I acquired myself a uh, particular shirt that I discovered protected me somewhat, uh, and I would suggest... <laughs> I can virtually guarantee you this helps you on public transportation. <laughs> it is a protection. Now, I want to encourage all of us to think deeply about a concept today, and that's called Hanlon's Razor. Hanlon's Razor, and it goes like this. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Ooh. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Now, malice, stupidity, and of course there is also malicious stupidity. Right? Now, yes. two human traits that we know quite well. Now, I know that none of us here today is malicious. We might be stupid. But we do here believe very definitely in educating ourselves to be better human beings. And that's what we want to talk about today. I think Rev. J already covered the waterfront pretty good on that. Um, I want to think a, a little bit, however, about black space, white space, and those kinds of things, and how maybe we're a little bit stupid, if not malicious. <laughs> Now, I wanted to discuss a book with you. I said I was going to go back 30 years. Why does there have to be a book called, you know, Black and White Space? What, what is this about white space? And that's what I really want to think about today. Because, you know, I grew up in white space. I didn't know. It was the water I swam in. So let's consider this a bit. And the book I want to think about, and I would invite you to look at it if you ever get a chance, would be Half American. It's a new book, and it's a discussion of the Second World War 
about, and what was going on with African Americans in the Second World War. It was a double struggle. They were fighting fascism and they were also fighting Jim Crow. And so we, they, black Americans were being asked to go in two very different directions in the Second World War period. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I showed you a, a, a copy of my dad's uh, military record from the Second World War. I, didn't, I forgot to point it out at the time, but in his military record, um, there were two boxes to tick. White, with a capital W, and Negro, with a little N. American Indians, the Japanese, everybody else was Negro. Every, and then there was capital W, white. That is a binary, folks. White, Negro, male, female, homosexuality. I, I think I've told the story of my mentor, my teacher, Allen Ginsberg, uh, who went to the, uh, the draft office. And when he got there, he was, he was always very openly gay. And so he was sent home. Why? because gayness was insanity. It was classified as a mental disorder in, 19, in the 1940s. And so he was sent home. <laughs> My dad wasn't, and so he was a capital W white. But everybody was living within these little boxes, and they were easy to tick in those days. The United States of the day was clearly made for white men. Black men were Half American, that's the title. And parenthetic, parenthetically, I would have to mention, and I know that you probably know this, but it needs to be said aloud, if black men were half American, what were black women? Well, that's one of the problems, right? That is one of the problems, neat little boxes. Was it malicious or was it stupid? Or was it maliciously stupid? I think it was a little bit of both. The man who realized that the trauma of the Second World War could be used for justice and good was a fellow by the name of A. Philip Randolph. He's one of my great heroes. Um, I first ran into him as a union organizer, not as a civil rights organizer. Uh, a. Philip Randolph first unionized elevator workers in New York City because they were all black, right? Most of us would not remember. I remember elevator operators a little bit back in the day, right? But you had to have someone conducting. They were called conductors, and they were black men. The other place where there were a lot of black men was the Pullman cars, right? And this is where a. Philip Randolph became a famous man. Uh, this book cover, Rising from the Rails, the story of the Pullman Porter, how a group of men no one knew inspired a nation to change. Sorry, I get, I get uh, caught up in that. But the workers, it was going to be the workers, and A. Philip Randolph understood that. He unionized the Pullman workers in, in Chicago, and then as, as they unionized, they became a political force, all black men. And their logo was service, not servitude. That's what their union was going to insist upon. Service, Pullman cars, we'll bring you your dinner, we'll make your bed, but it's service, not servitude. 
The America of the Second World War ran on steam. Another thing we forget, the steam locomotive was the main transportation of the Second World War, and the Pullman cars on those trains were the troop, uh, the, the, the troop cars back and forth. And all American service people were transported by that. Now think for a moment about the America of 1942 and rails. What do they cross as they cross the country? The Mason-Dixon line. So we're going back and forth in, from Jim Crow to non-Jim Crow to Jim Crow to non-Jim Crow. I quickly add that, no, we weren't so good up here in the North either, right? There was a lot of segregation, de facto segregation up here. All right. A. Philip Randolph seized this opportunity. He was smart enough to see the power that he suddenly had. America had to run on the rails. The war effort was steam-based. And the people who did the service on the trains were black men who were unionized as Pullman workers. Our president figured that out pretty fast, too. A. Philip Randolph said, we have a few demands before we will serve. We're going to strike. And then, and then it got even bigger. He said, we're going to do a march on Washington. Now, in 1942, America, the US, lost every battle in the Second World War that year. It was a bad year. Hearing that the trains were going to shut down was scary. Hearing that black people were going to march on Washington was really scary. <laughs> so Franklin Roosevelt calls yes. Philip Randolph and says, come to the White House and talk with me. Mm -hmm. One of the first black people to do that. What do you want, says Mr. Roosevelt. And A. Philip Randolph was smart enough to have a big long list. <laughs> now, just to get him out of the office, Roosevelt promised to sign a, a, a presidential order that would desegregate the defense industry. Problem was, it was never funded and it was never enforced. But at least it happened, right? And A. Philip Randolph continued fighting all that time. Now, one of my favorite quotes from A. Philip Randolph is this one, because I think it is the essence of liberality, liberalism, and what we're fighting for. A community is democratic only when the humblest and weakest person can enjoy the highest civil, economic, and social rights that the biggest and most powerful possess. I think we agree with that. Look, all day. All day. <laughs> that wasn't the America he woke up in. He was one of the forces that caused it to happen. Another thing about A. Philip Randolph, he was an atheist, was very dangerous in those days. He, he was a humanist. He signed the second humanist yes, manifesto, which is, a, is proud for us. And the last thing I want to share about A. Philip Randolph before we go, get a little bit deeper into how this all worked is a quote that I feel, well, it continues on to today. He said this, freedom is never given, right? It is won. And you notice I found this slide online because his words live on in all kinds of civil rights fights all over the world. So it's easy to forget this fellow now, the big all, but read up on him, A. Philip Randolph. I think one of the things that, I mean, as we kind of unpack the era in which uh, A. Philip Randolph came up in, 
is very different than the person I'm about to introduce, which is Bayard Rustin. A lot younger. And to have access to conversations around union labor and then move into civil rights, mm -hmm. this is big. Because we see the shift from labor to now civil rights, which ultimately is around the narrative of black people. Might I be so more specific to say black men? And why do I do that? Because when we see it is this idea of the million man march. That is the conversation that starts to happen. Though it is the March on Washington, we, we do see that certain people have certain visibility. Mm -hmm. Technology at the time is television. You do get a chance to see what is happening. You get to see the people. And King has been taking the spotlight yep. for most of it. Mm -hmm. And it is A. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin, as well as Ella Baker and a few others who are deeply involved in organizing this march. King doesn't have time to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does it. He's a media star already. Right? Yeah, he's a media yeah. star. You know, I mean, it's, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to knock King. Nope. I know we like to dress it up. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can't have great leadership without great support. That's right. Okay? And so that's, that's the thing about building vision. Uh, so as I was pointing out to this idea that A. Philip Randolph is a lot older than Bayard Rustin, one of the things that is very important to know about Rustin, as some of you might know, is that he was a gay black man. He was also a Quaker. And his involvement, of course, stretched widely um, as he began to work with King and pushing political powers. But one of the things that was kind of deviant was that the fact that there was Adam Clayton Powell who was running for Senate. And we know that, you know, this did not fit the framework. Bayard Rustin did not fit the framework required probably just as well as A. Philip Randolph right. had to hide yep. his atheism. There's no box to tip. You, you have to be fitting the black respectability politic. The black American respectability politic. So this is very challenging because this still exists today. And we see this even in our liberal spaces. That's right. Bayard Rustin is openly gay. He's not closeted, mm -hmm. and the brother is tall. <laughs> and good looking. <laughs> right? And got the nerve to pull a white young man alongside Walter, Walter Nagel, if you have not read their story together. It is amazing yeah, to hear. A long-term relationship in the, oh, in the heat of the media. Yeah, in the heat of the media. So here it is. I mean, Walter, Walter Nagel and Bayard Rustin, his partner at the time, they had a 20-year difference in age. He actually adopted his husband, or, since there were no uh, laws around, um, um, I'm losing my, my language, uh, oh, yeah, around uh, gender and, right. and sexuality. Uh, like, here it is, you have these individuals who are 
figuring out ways. So it's literally a, a real adoption process. He actually goes to his mother, gets the papers signed, just so that he'll be protected. You know, um, this is what Bayard Rustin does. A black man does this. The white man doesn't come in to save the day. Mm-hmm. It's a very different narrative. Mm-hmm. And I bring, I, I, I really like focusing on Bayard Rustin because he was always reimagining. And he was always doing the unimaginable. And I was sitting here, and I want to offer this as, as we get ready to move forward, because one of the things I said in this particular book, um, we want to do more than survive. Yeah. Abolish teaching and the pursuit of uh, educational freedom. It's been a very close book of mine as of late. But it says the following. Uh, the educator and philosopher Maxine Green says, the, says this. To commit to imagining is to commit to looking beyond the given, beyond what appears to be unchangeable. We need imagination. Abolitionist tools against injustice are our imagination. Abolitionist tools are, are, are the things that we need today, right? And that is the first tool of that is imagination. Their imagination is, f- is fueled with resistance, being free, imagining reading, imagining falling in love, imagining life and not death, imagining seeing the world, imagining freedom. If it was crazy to be gay and be locked away and be, in, be put in sane asylums, Judith Wiseman, Dr. Judith Wiseman, who spoke last time at the uh, at the uh, the uh, UU assembly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last year, where last year? Yeah. Offered this this work as well around the insanity to think of freedom. We have a lot of people who want mm-hmm. this idea of freedom, and here it is. That's the narrative. Bayard Rustin was not interested in a very particular kind of freedom. It wasn't a, a black man's freedom. It was an inclusive, radical freedom that encompassed all genders, all creeds, all sexualities, and it was that vast. It wasn't focused on one group, but Adam Clayton Powell and Dr. King did not have, let alone a a politic, let alone a theology that could hold black queer liberation. That's right, unfortunately. I think when we look at this, Adam Clayton Powell was the malicious. (laughs) And I am here to probably disturb the peace when I make this statement, and I will comfortably say it, that unfortunately, Dr. King got caught up in the stupidity. That's hard to say. But sometimes we miss the mark when we're engaging with those who often come from a space of being malicious, and then those who are in the know Mm -hmm. don't always use the tools to do the imagining to say our focus has to change. And so that is why we have to commit to an imagining, an imagining that says there are black atheists, there are black humanists, there is an imagining that there are black queer folk and that there are those who are beyond our own understanding even today. That's right. Yeah. So I, I think like when we think about bridging the two, yep. 
we have to bridge them in a conversation that is also very intergenerational. Mm-hmm. That's our relationship. Yep. You know? Yep. Two individuals who come from two different time periods and everything, but we find a way to be intergenerational, intersectional, and intercultural regarding our conversation, and we do our best to share in the worth of knowing of each other's experience. And that's very challenging sometimes. Yep. Well, and you know, when we think now about the challenges, and there are a lot, Think about A. Philip Randolph, he moved from Florida, mm-hmm. a middle class black man, and he goes to Harlem to become a Shakespearean actor. That he was does. his vision for himself. And he was good. Of course, he had to play Othello. But you get the idea. Of course. Yeah. It's only appropriate. <laughs> but, but this man looks around at complete powerlessness, and he says, wait a minute, there's some black men on those elevators. They can unionize and they can have power. Mm-hmm. Those black men on those trains, who every, everybody expects to say, yes, sir, you know, mm-hmm. hey, mm-hmm. Porter, hey, Porter, there's songs, yeah? So they were expecting servitude. Guess what? We're going to unionize <laughs> and we're going to have some power, even at the lowest level of servitude. And next, he's in the White House talking to the president about what he wants. That's what we have to remember, the impossibility of change. It's impossible, but it's not if we think about it. And that's what I want to leave us with today. What do you think? I think that's fine. I think as long as we are flexible and imaginable, then we are doing the intelligible thing to do. Well, that is what this place is about. But yeah, we started back in 1881 when the boxes were looked like that, capital W white, little n Negro. Mm-hmm. But we're not there now, and we will continue to fight for freedom all the while. All the while. All yes. The while. Yeah. Let's have a song, shall we? Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.